I think there are some simple reforms that we can engage in, you know, separate out the revenue, you know, don't allow there to be any financial incentive for what we call predatory policing. And we shouldn't have the money that comes from a court fee or a traffic stop shouldn't go to the local uh, city coffers. It should go to the state education system or it should go somewhere else so that there's no financial incentive to try to extract money uh, from our citizens based on policing. Hey everyone, it's Jenna. I spent some time recently going through the Democracy Works back catalog to figure out which episodes we are going to rebroadcast while we take a summer break. And in the course of doing that, I, I came across two that we did pretty early on in the show's run um, from the fall of 2018. They're about race and police and criminal justice and all kinds of things that are, are really relevant to a lot of the conversation that's happening in the U.S and even to, to some extent throughout the, the rest of the world about the future of, of police and justice and race. And so I'm going to rebroadcast those two episodes um, this week and next week, but with a slight twist. Uh, I caught back up with, with both of those guests, Frank Baumgartner and Peter Enns, to see where things are now, um, how their thinking may have changed in the past two years, what they make of our current moment and the potential for police and criminal justice reform moving forward. So it's an interesting coda or postscript, however you want to think of it. I'm, I'm really glad I was able to get both of them back on the line. Uh, so this week we are talking with Frank Baumgartner from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, he is an author of a book called um, Suspect Citizens, which looks at data from 20 million traffic stops throughout North Carolina over the course of, of about a decade or so and draw some really interesting trends based on that. So first you'll hear my conversation with Frank from the fall of 2018, and then you'll hear my conversation with him from late June of 2020. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So I don't normally like to um, start with origin stories, but I think this one per is uh, perhaps worth telling. Um, so 20 million um, traffic stops. Can you tell us how the, the state of North Carolina um, came in into to possession of this information and how it ended up in the, the hands of uh, you and your colleagues? Okay, sure. That is a good question. Um, Back in uh, 1996, I think it was, an investigative reporter for the local newspaper, the Raleigh uh, News and Observer, by the name of Joe Neff, uh, did an investigative report about the possibility that a certain drug unit of the State Highway Patrol was searching Black and Hispanic drivers at a higher rate than uh, white drivers, and that they were potentially really targeting these individuals on the highways. And that led to uh, uh, a serious uh, inquiry and denials on the part of the highway patrol. But uh, also the late 1990s were a time when there was a lot of uh, increased concern for this uh, thing that people were beginning to call driving while black back at the time. And North Carolina became the first state in the nation to mandate uh, collecting traffic stops. So since 2000, the highway patrol has been doing it. And then uh, since 2002, the law was expanded to cover every police department in the state. 
So that's how they started collecting the data. And then uh, I was asked to volunteer uh, to look at the data for a task force of uh, defense attorneys um, uh, in 2011. So I was presented with a CD that had the data and asked if I could figure out how to get my hands around it. So I've been working on it for seven years now. Can you uh, walk us through, um, based on, on, on what you found, how a traffic stop experience might differ for, say, a middle-class white man versus a young African-American or Latino man? Yeah, so as a middle-class white man myself, I can tell you my personal experience is that I very rarely have any interactions at all with the police. And if uh, and when I do, it's always uh, very respectful and uh, I would say either by the book or else uh, very helpful to me. The last time I uh, was um, pulled over, I think, was um, probably 20, 25 years ago. It's never happened to me in North Carolina. It happened to me in other states. But anyway, the point is that it's extremely rare. Um, for a young man of color, uh, it would be um, frustratingly common. And one of the things that we show in the data is not only is it very common, but it's also very commonly fruitless. That is to say, the traffic stop leads to just a warning or maybe no action at all. It's less likely to lead to a ticket. A citation is less likely if the driver is African-American, uh, but it's much more likely, about twice as likely, to lead to a search of the vehicle. And in certain combinations, such as certain neighborhoods, certain times of the night, like at two in the morning, uh, for a young man of color, the search rate might be 15 or 20 percent, whereas the average overall is, is less than 3 percent. Right. And, and so what did you find is kind of the, the cause of, of this uh, disparity in, in search rates? Well, we really think that there's a stereotype that police are faced with a very difficult, low information situation when they're looking at a driver uh, in a routine traffic stop. And inevitably, it seems that they use uh, visible cues to indicate to themselves whether they think that person might be uh, engaged in suspicious activity. The interesting thing about um, the legal precedence here is that the Supreme Court uh, is made up mostly of white middle-class men like me, and they've kind of used their own um, experiences, I think, informally in informing the law. And so the court has said routinely that it's only a momentary inconvenience, and any individuals could be subjected to a an occasional stop and search uh, for the for the uh, in the interest of the public good, and since it's only momentary, and implicitly, I think they assumed it would be very rare for any individual, like it would be for me, or for most justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, they said that it was a, a trivial inconvenience, and I think that's where the mistake gets made because um, it's not that uncommon. Philando Castile, who was uh, killed after a traffic stop up in Minnesota, had been pulled over, I think, uh, something upwards of 35 times in his short lifetime. Yeah, yeah. You cite that in the book. You cite uh, 46 times in 14 years. Yeah. So if I'm going to be pulled over once every 25 years as a middle class white man, it's clear that I just can't uh, 
routinely empathize with somebody who lives on a different side of town and who uh, might routinely be uh, targeted by the police. I've never experienced that myself. And that's where I think the empathy gap comes from, where people just can't believe that it could be happening. You also point in the book to um, something called uh, risk management policing. Um, can, can you explain what, what that is and how it figures into this picture? If you think back to the 1960s or you think back to your history books about the 1960s, depending on your age, um, police uh, focused on solving crimes once they had occurred. But there got to be a very big shift in the philosophy and ideology and uh, professional practices and norms within policing in the 1970s. It really started. And that was to see if uh, the police couldn't use certain social and psychological demographic profiles uh, about who criminals are and what they likely look like if they couldn't then interrupt the criminals before they committed a crime. And so policing became much more proactive and much more aggressive. And the magic about the system was that it didn't happen to middle-class white people. It didn't happen on the nice side of town. It happened on the other side of town, maybe at night or during the day, but to people with very little political voice and ability to protect themselves politically. Uh, people who were seen as... Um, either expendable or uh, likely criminal elements. If you're a young black or Hispanic man with an older car and out-of-state plates um, driving late at night, you know, you're, you're just in a different world than uh, an Asian American lady driving in rush hour. In some cases, the, the police, you, you say in the book, are kind of using the you know, minuscule pieces of the traffic code as an excuse to pull them over and do searches for, for drugs or, or other substances. Yeah, the interesting thing was there was a, a, a deputy sheriff down in Florida whose uh, county sheriff's office had some jurisdiction over Interstate 95. I think it was near Daytona, Florida. And he uh, decided that he was concerned about drug couriers driving through their jurisdiction. And so he routinely was pulling over black and Hispanic drivers uh, as they went up and down I-95. And judges were throwing out his cases because he didn't have any excuse or explanation for why he pulled over this driver other than their ethnicity or race. So judges were throwing him out. So the um, deputy sheriff, who then later became quite well known and he was elected to be sheriff, did some research. And the research suggested that if you had a crack on your license plate holder, or if you had a shadow extending over your license plate, or if you had any crack or malfunction in any part of your vehicle, um, that he could pull you over for cause and it was a legally justified traffic stop. Uh, so that's the vehicle part of the equation. The other part is the traffic law itself. If you were going 54 miles an hour in a 55 zone, he could say that you were obstructing traffic. You were impeding the free flow of traffic. If you touched the white line, he could say that you were driving on the improved shoulder. Obviously, if you were speeding, as most drivers do routinely on the interstate highways, he could pull you over for speeding. And once he had a legally justified reason to pull you over, then it was open season because he could talk to you and ask for permission to search your vehicle and use all the kind of informal forms of influence that an officer might have to do what he wanted, which was to uh, search the vehicle. 
what impact do all of these stops and searches have on democratic participation for these these folks who are being pulled over and searched? Even just a simple interaction with the police officer, such as a questioning or a traffic stop, could reduce the likelihood that someone will vote by as much as 10 percent. And uh, in our research, we looked at it in a little bit of a different way. We identified that in those communities in North Carolina where the African-American segment of the population has significant political power, such as uh, several seats on the city council and uh, a large share of the voters in the previous election, the racial disparities in the traffic stops in those communities are significantly lower even so much that in the communities with the highest uh, level of political power for the black community, um, there there are no statistically significant racial disparities in search rates. Uh, And even black drivers in those towns are more likely to get a ticket. Now you might think that a ticket is a bad outcome for a traffic stop, but getting a ticket indicates that there was a good reason to pull you over. Not getting a ticket indicates that perhaps the officer just pulled you over because he wanted to talk to you and that your driving really didn't merit the sanction of a, of a ticket. So there is a big cost. And I think that when we think nationally in the bigger picture about why is it that many men, especially men, but uh, women as well in minority communities don't trust the police, uh, and we overcome our empathy gap to look at the numbers and understand that in that community, the police might very well be playing quite a different role, not protecting and serving, but uh, really uh, intervening and being much more aggressive and kind of hassling people in the hopes of breaking up a crime. And then we have to ask, well, are they breaking up a lot of crimes? And I can say that using the traffic code, And using routine vehicle stops as a method to do that is just extremely inefficient and it alienates people and it makes them not trust the government. In some of the the ways that these um, incidents are are framed in in the media, thinking about Philando Castile and other kind of high high profile incidents like that, that the police often point to, you know, bad apple police officers or try to kind of paint this as this is just one or two, you know, problem officers that might have have biases or other other factors going on. Um, what what does your your research say about that? Is it is it truly just a, a couple of, of bad apples, or is is there a larger kind of systemic uh, problem going on here? And uh, the an- the short answer is that it's both. Uh, in our data set for North Carolina, we we have an ID number for every police officer, although we don't know their name or their Uh, anything about them, but there is an anonymous ID number. And that allowed us to cluster all of the traffic stops and searches uh, officer by officer to see if indeed there were any officers who had very unusual patterns of stopping or searching only the black or the white or Hispanic drivers or whatever the case may be. And indeed, we did find a lot of officers who stood out from their colleagues. Uh, But on the other hand, we found systematic patterns where the typical officer had really significantly higher rates of searching uh, black drivers as compared to white drivers, especially among men. Uh, The racial disparities are much lower among female drivers. But in any case, when we controlled for what we called these bad apple officers, the systematic and institutional practices were still present. So I think the short answer is really accurate. It's both. 
there are bad apple officers, and we've brought many of them to the attention of their supervisors across North Carolina. And I think some actions have been taken in a few cases. Uh, but it's it can't be limited to that. We can't accept an idea from a police chief who would love to believe that he's just got three or four officers that are causing all the problems of community mistrust. It's That's just not true. It's much uh, broader than that. What other impacts um, have these these findings had since since the the book was published and since you've kind of you know been out there trying to to tell this story about what we can glean from all these traffic stops? Well, I think one thing that's happened is a lot of police chiefs and police leaders around the state and the nation have been looking at their own statistics more carefully. One of the lost opportunities in all this work that North Carolina has put into collecting the data is that the central office that collects it. First of all, never issued a single report, so nobody was aware of any of these um, uh, patterns or how uh, ubiquitous they are. Um, and so any city that might have been the subject of some kind of study would feel that they were being unfairly singled out. And I like to be careful not to try to single out any particular places uh, because the, the patterns that I've seen, they are a little bit worse in some places than in others but they're pretty much everywhere. I mean, the routine, the, the average uh, increased likelihood of search in North Carolina for a black driver is over 100%. In Ferguson, Missouri, when the US Department of Justice did their investigation into all the terrible scandals in that police department, the increased likelihood of search was 70%. And so North Carolina, on average, is worse off than Ferguson, Missouri. And a lot of people would point to Ferguson as an epicenter of a particularly bad community police relations, but it's not really that much better in many other places. So I think that we have to recognize that the data are very consistent, the patterns are very clear, and uh, I think it's also worth questioning in the police world whether we're really getting a lot of bang for our buck with using the routine traffic stop as a mechanism to fight crime. I think that most police uh, leaders would recognize that there's gotta be a better way. This is alienating people and not providing a lot of, uh, lot, uh, very much to show for it. This issue has not gone away. So there's been some real organizational structure behind keeping this issue of disparate treatment in criminal justice, but in policing in particular, on the national agenda. And I think it's been a difficult conversation, but it's, I think, one that is not going away. The numbers keep coming. People keep doing more and better studies. And the data that I've uh, analyzed certainly, you know, are robust. There, there is no way that you can make these disparities go away. And I think police departments have come to understand that rather than suggest that there are no differences in policing across race and gender, we have to recognize that there are very significant differences and then ask whether it's worth it, whether it's justified and whether we get a public safety benefit from it. And the answer seems to be no, we don't. As a matter of fact, we're probably paying a significant cost because of the reduced uh, trust in government and trust in the police. So that's something that I think every American uh, should be concerned about. Welcome to our postscript conversation. Uh, thrilled to have Frank Baumgartner back with us. And Frank, it was 
two years ago um, when we last spoke and given how quickly things change, that might as well have been a lifetime ago. So I, I'm excited to, to revisit some of the, the things that are in your book and were in our last discussion and see what has changed or perhaps not since then. One of the things that we spent a lot of time talking about in our, our first conversation was this notion of an empathy gap. And there's been so much discussion lately, and we've certainly seen this with the, the protests happening following the deaths of George Floyd and others about this this disconnect or this lack of empathy between police and the and the, the communities that they serve. And I'm wondering from where you sit, are, are we any closer to closing that empathy gap now than than we were, say, two years ago or, or even you know since then? First of all, thanks for having me back. And then to answer your question, I, I do believe that we're much closer to uh, closing that empathy gap. I'm a little concerned that we're going to close the empathy gap among a certain generation and group of individuals and then leave it gaping wide among other people based on their social media presence, their political views, and the polarization that our country has been um, experiencing over the last several years. But on average, I think uh, it's clear that um, white Americans are much more aware of the reality of um, uh, disparate policing in our country. And um, I think that has been a huge change over the last couple months. Is this an issue to to have any type of meaningful police reform? Does it really take everybody to be on board or or what is that kind of critical mass do you think that that there really needs to be to have structural changes? There's a really substantial generational divide. I feel like people who are under the age of 35 are much more likely to be um, really engaged with this current movement and older people um, maybe less so, but but it's affecting everybody. Uh, so I'm I'm quite impressed with the scope of the change that we're experiencing now. It's all over the news and it has been for months. So I think that's a that's a big change. I think there was some kind of a, a several year long softening up period where we have been increasingly aware of racial disparities as it relates to criminal justice and policing in particular really since the shooting of uh, Trayvon Martin in 2013. So that's been quite some time now. So uh, people have had increased awareness and it kind of moved us up to a plateau. And now I think we're moving up from that baseline to an even higher level of awareness. So I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with this change. Right. And, uh, you know, one one idea that that I've seen floated out there, I think, speaks you know pretty directly to, to some of the work that you did for your book, Suspect Citizens, um, looking at this notion of d- really questioning, do we need police officers to be doing traffic stops in in the first place? Can we just add more cameras or have some other type of technology based solution. And, and you know, I'm curious what you make of, of those types of calls, given your, your work in this area. Well, it is really interesting to think about um, the level of privacy that one can expect in one's own home versus walking down the street versus driving a car. And basically what's happened without people even realizing it is that once you get in a car, most likely you're violating some law. And once you violate a law, you're open to a police investigation. 
Now, most of us are not aware of this because the police choose not to investigate us because it's such a highly discretionary act on the part of the police officer. And that's where we get into the racial disparities. But if you're driving a car, you're either speeding or you're obstructing traffic. Those are the only two options. Uh, And so the police officer has the legal authority to pull you over and engage in a conversation with you, uh, which is quite different than if you're um, just sitting on a street corner or minding your own business or um, in your own home. You have a much greater expectation and right to privacy in those settings. So I think it is a really interesting question. Uh, Should we allow the police to use the uh, widespread violation of virtually every traffic law as an excuse to engage in what amounts to a criminal investigation. And a lot of people are pulling back from that and, and saying, you know, really, just because you uh, rolled through a stop sign or you went 30 miles an hour in a 25 zone or you went 57 in a 55 zone, that shouldn't allow the, the police to single you out um, and um, search your pockets and look for marijuana or whatever it is they might look for. In our book, we also showed that that needle in the haystack kind of approach is extremely uh, inefficient in terms of cost and effort. It doesn't lead to a significant increase in public safety, and it's really a massive waste of money and resources. So I think there is an argument about allowing the police to pull back from these things. And, you know, I've thought sometimes, you know, why not have a separate group of Uh, public officials who are just traffic uh, of, you know, traffic officers that don't have, don't carry guns and don't necessarily have the right to uh, arrest you. Maybe if they thought they needed to, they could call in the police if they saw something that led them to have a suspicion of criminal activity. But just because you went 60 in a 55 zone, you know, that doesn't make you a, a, a likely criminal suspect. Yeah, sure. Trying to to keep the the traffic violations isolated to just that, right? Without all of these other kind of add on things that that tend to tend to happen when people, as you said, start searching your car, and then that's where the some of the the kind of racial disparities. Yeah, and then you know our book happened to be focused on traffic stops, but you know you could say the same thing about loitering or jaywalking. Uh, in particular, loitering and trespassing on private property. Those things are very rarely enforced. Um, most of us, of course, have never been you know, approached by the police with an accusation that we were loitering. But it does happen uh, to poor people and to homeless people. And the police have the authority to arrest people for loitering or trespassing or jaywalking. And, of course, they, they don't do it to middle class people. Right, um, right. And so the that, question is, you know, do we really need, are those laws really making us safer or are they causing more harm than good because they're generating such a decline in public trust in those communities where the police are so present and so active? I think that's where we're really coming around to understand that, that, that frustration among people who are over-policed. Yeah, it is kind of, I've heard it described as like a de facto surveillance state almost where, yeah, you can't really do anything without feeling like the 
the uh, police are watching you or that, yeah, that you're going to get in trouble for something. And that leads to fear and, and anxiety and distrust and, and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And it's so geographically focused that most people are unaware of it because and that's where the empathy gap that I talked about before comes from, because for most of us, it's not happening. We're not over policed. We're um, on average, we're under policed. And then uh, the policing is much different in certain areas, neighborhoods that the police call high crime areas, which essentially is where poor people live. I know your your book also drew some connections between, um, you know, some of this increased police activity and, you know, decreased likelihood to vote and, and, and some of these sorts of things. So what are you seeing there? I mean, is, is it too early to, to try to draw any correlation between this uptick in, in protest and other activity around police reform and how that might translate into voter behavior at the polls this November? Well, it's very clear that there's a huge mobilization uh, of uh, black and brown people into politics. And I think, uh, you know, it remains to be seen how that will translate into the into the polls in November, but I'm expecting it to be quite substantial. Um, I, I could also tell you that we've continued our research and we have a paper that we just completed that uh, with some graduate students uh, that... Um, we showed that the more that a city relies on fines and fees as a portion of its municipal revenue stream, the higher the disparity in traffic stop uh, and searches that relate to traffic stops. So I think there are some simple reforms that we can engage in, you know, separate out the revenue, you know, don't allow there to be any financial incentive for what we call predatory policing. And we shouldn't have the money that comes from a court fee or a traffic stop shouldn't go to the local uh, city coffers. It should go to the state education system or it should go somewhere else so that there's no financial incentive to try to extract money uh, from our citizens based on uh, policing. Is is that a tougher sell now, like post-COVID, do you think, when, when a lot of, of municipalities are likely looking at budget shortfalls for, for a variety of reasons that have, have come up over the past few months? Well, you know, I can't remember the name of the famous gangster when he was asked, why did he rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. You know, I think if cities want to, you know, raise money, they need to raise the money from the rich people, not the poor people. And, you know, the money is in the in the in the bank accounts of the middle class and wealthier people. I'm not encouraging them to go in a predatory fashion, take the money from the rich. But why target the poor? I mean, that that just makes no sense. And maybe the reason is we target the poor or historically we have through the criminal justice system because we can portray anyone involved in the criminal justice system as a lawbreaker and a potentially violent or dangerous person. And that's just, that's a mis, uh, it's a misconstruction. And it's, it's, it's just so inherently unfair that I think people are starting to understand how bad that such a policy is. Well, right. And, and, and of course, too, you know, poor people don't have as much political capital and they're kind of easier in, in, in some respects, too. I think that point's been made loud and clear recently as well. Um, yeah, I mean, try to increase taxes on poor people or try to change the estate tax. 
and which group is going to fight back harder. And I think we can all see that the estate tax people are going to fight back harder and with a lot more political clout. And so that's just a, a, a fact of politics that we have to be willing to stand up against and change. Right. So you're, you're continuing to, to work on this subject. And I, and I know that the last time we spoke to you, it seemed like your, your work was just starting to get out there. I'm, I'm curious if, if you've heard from police departments or, or if some of these things that you found through your work are starting to, to make their way into police systems themselves. Well, I just saw that yesterday our local town council mandated that the Chapel Hill, North Carolina Police Department completely stop making regulatory traffic stops. Um, So I think, yes, we are beginning to see some of the fruit of our research be translated into policy proposals. I think the policy proposals that are on the table today, you know, relating to police use of force, those go well beyond, you know, the, the context of a traffic stop. And our research was very tightly focused just on that. But um, so I think there's a lot of really important policy reforms that are coming out. And uh, I think our, you know, I'm glad that we were able to get that book out when we did. And it, it, it provides a little bit of background material for thinking about one of the questions that we really asked in the book was, is it worth it? Are we getting good bang for the buck? Are we increasing public safety through the use of all these traffic stops for pretextual reasons and, you know, fighting the war on crime and the war on drugs through the traffic code? And the answer that, you know, I think is pretty clear in our book is that no, it's it's not an efficient use of resources. And I think now that fits into the argument about um, are we, what's the right size of a police force? You know, how many guns and uh, handcuffs do we need versus how many mental health uh, counselors and alcohol abuse counselors and other people who might be able to deal with the social service problems that all of our cities have? Right. And then that that kind of brings in the the whole dynamic of of police unions and things stepping in. I think there's a a power dynamic at play here, too, or, or probably several power dynamics that are all kind of rolling up into one. I mean, have you seen at all or, or, or do you even expect any pushback from from the police in Chapel Hill, for example, to, to this this policy that was just passed by, by the town council? Well, I think in the long run, we'll see some really significant pushback from um, law enforcement communities and prosecutors. But um, I think that's part of the process. We go through cycles and, um, you know, push on the left and then there's a push on the right. And I think, you know, there's long term cycles in the 1980s and 90s. Politicians of both parties were very convinced that there was a huge crime wave coming. And there was this youthful group of uh, what they called super predators was going to come and run havoc over our whole country. And that never happened. And, um, you know, there was a crime wave in the 1980s that lasted into the 90s, maybe associated with the crack epidemic. But it wasn't associated with some new type of criminal. Um, And yet that was the rhetoric at the time. And now I think since the 2000s, since the mid-1990s and early 2000s with, you know, a lot of people like um, Michelle Alexander publishing her book, The New Jim Crow, and you know, there's a there's a new understanding that maybe we've got, you know, a million too many people in prison 
you know, if we've got 3 million people locked up, is that the right number? Or would we do fine with uh, 2 million people locked up? And I think we are moving in a direction. And now we're going to push further in a direction of pulling back from these harsh criminal justice policies. Uh, I would imagine there will be some, eventually, some pushback in the other direction. But uh, hopefully we'll move and make some important, long-lasting reforms. Yeah, well, great. Well, Frank, uh, thank you so much for coming back to join us today. Okay, thanks for having me. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.